Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview author and retired State University of New York English professor Edward O'Shea. His book, Seamus Heaney's American Odyssey, was published by Rutledge Press in December 2022. In May of this year, he sat down to talk about his biography of this Irish poet with fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly. Professor Tell me how many years you taught and what the course was. Okay. I taught for 35 years. And uh, my specialty was modern British and Irish literature. And when I could, I taught the Irish writers. And when I couldn't, I taught a lot of contemporary novelists and 20th century novelists and modernists. Modernists are my great interest, really, too. How many times have you gone to Ireland? Too many to count. Seriously? Yes, yes. Uh huh. I started in, I think it was about 68. I was in the Peace Corps in North Africa. I was uh, there when Gaddafi took over. He kicked us out of the country. And so rather than go back to uh, Chicago, where I was born, I took a circuitous route around Europe and uh, ended up in Dublin in 68, I think. And there was no reason to go back to the States quite then. So I holed up in a little hotel on the north side of uh, Dublin Bay. And I started reading Joyce's Ulysses, and that was the first time. And then I made a point of trying to get to every place that was of serious mention in Ulysses. How about Joyce? Well, I'm intensely interested in Joyce, yeah. And you visited where he lived? I didn't visit his house, no. He exiled himself from Ireland pretty early. But uh, I have been to his grave in Zurich. I went into the cemetery, and I asked the warden, or whatever he was, uh, and of course he didn't speak English, but he motioned to the back of the cemetery. And there you go, and it's an almost full-size, life-size effigy of Joyce, and he's sitting with his legs crossed, smoking a cigarette, reading a book. It's a beautiful statue. <laughs> Tell me how I pronounce Seamus Heaney. Yeah. Heaney. Yes. And what drew you to him? Well, my lifelong interest has been W.B. Yeats. And so I spent, I don't know how many years, teaching, uh, writing about Yeats. I cataloged Yeats's library, uh, began about 1970, in Ann Yeats's house. Now, Ann Yeats was W.B. Yeats's daughter, uh, and she was the subject of a prayer for my daughter, this wonderful poem by Yeats. In any case, I went to her house any number of times, cataloged the library, Went back, finished my Ph.D. at Northwestern. In probably the 70s, the 80s, I started teaching NEH seminars in Ireland. And uh, this is actually answering your question. But <laughs> no, please. Yeah. It's um, a very Irish way to answer yeah, yeah. the question. <laughs> That's the truth. Long. But, so uh, I would have these students over in Ireland, and we would study Yates for uh, a month at a time, usually out in Galway, and then we'd go up to Sligo. And at the end of each one of these, and of course we had been just studying Yeats and very intensely, they would always say to me, but what about Seamus Heaney? Implying that 
we must talk about him. We must read him. And so that planted the idea. Now, I had read, of course, Seamus Heaney before, you know. But at that point, well, I was just retired at that point, And I said, well, yeah, now Yeats died in 1939, so I need to get past 1939, get into something contemporary, okay? Coincidentally, Seamus Heaney was born in 1939. And so, you know, in some mystical kind of way, there was some continuity there. But uh, I didn't start the book until 2015. And uh, about that time, I was retired. And I needed a project to keep my mind going, you know, as we all do. And so I had been writing scholarly analytical writing for my whole life. And I was tired of that. And I was thinking, I need to write something a little freer. And so narrative has always appealed to me, and biography has always appealed to me. So I said, well, I think I'm going to write something about Seamus Heaney, and it's going to be narrative, you know. And it's also going to be analytical, because that's what I do. Now, I knew that not being Irish, I mean Irish-Irish, that there was going to loom on the horizon an authorized biography of Seamus Heaney. And I knew I wasn't the person to do it. I was a little too far advanced in my career. And honestly, because of the complex situation in the north of Ireland, it should be somebody Irish, right? And that's, in fact, the person who was writing. I don't know if you know Fintan O'Toole. Uh, I know of him. Of him, yeah. But he, he's writing the authorized biography. But just as with W.B. Yeats, an Irishman had to write that. So Roy Foster is the author of the two volumes on Yeats. Because of the complex political situation in Ireland, it's not to say that a non-Irish person couldn't do it. But so if I wanted to write about Seamus Heaney, something biographical, what do I know best? Well, his American experience. And uh, he had lived and taught in this country off and on for almost 40 years. So, I mean, this was his second country, in a sense, right? And I also had a friend in graduate school, and she died tragically, but she had written a book on W.B. Yeats's lecture tours in the U.S. Never got it published, and that was a shame. But uh, Roy Foster, in writing the biography of Yeats, had actually been able to use her work uh, significantly. And so what she did was she traced Yeats's lecture tours across the country. And uh, he was... Uh, very, very popular lecturer in this country. But he had spent fairly little time here. He traveled from one place to another. Did but he mostly hit northeastern cities? He traveled across the whole country, but there were largely Irish-American audiences. But with Heaney, you know, he taught at Berkeley, he taught at Harvard, Harvard for a significant amount of time. And he was a prodigious reader of his poetry. Uh, you know, his lecture tours would crisscross the whole country. And I talk about one uh, called the 1981 Hardship Tour. And it was a hardship tour because he went to all these little places and he would go to a different college every day and he would take these tiny little puddle jumpers and he'd end up someplace that he had never been before and that night he'd give a reading and he'd go to dinner with the faculty and uh, he would get up the next morning and take another small plane to another little town, another little college. So the man worked too hard. I think that's one of the themes in my book that uh, it's been said about him that uh, hard work sort of killed him at an earlier age than he should have died, you know. He died at the age of? He died in 2013, and he was born in 1939. So I think, what does that make him, 75 or 76, something like that, you know. We're doing this interview 
when Joe Biden is president. Can you tell us what drew President Biden to Heaney? Yes, and Bill Clinton before him. I mean, that, that hope and history passage from uh, Philoctetes or the Curate Troy is one that Bill Clinton and, and Hillary Clinton were quoting constantly. And uh, I think that passage, it's an optimistic passage, okay? It says, in effect, that the moment that we live in history is... Uh, perhaps rather awful, perhaps disruptive, anything but ideal. But there will come a time when hope and history rhyme. And of course, they don't rhyme, you know. Now, Clinton had Irish background, too. And uh, Biden has more, I think. But for one thing, they ask Biden, they say, why do you keep quoting Irish writers? And Biden says, because they're the best. (laughs) Because they're the best? The best, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But um, I have a whole chapter in my book about how Bill Clinton discovered Seamus Heaney for the first time. And uh, he did a tour in Ireland in uh, 1975. And he had never read Seamus Heaney by that time. But uh, he landed in Belfast. And his speechwriter was a man by the name of Wilkie Carter. So in any case, uh, they got into a helicopter and they're flying from Belfast to Derry where he was going to give the speech for the first time. And Wilkie Carter hands him the speech. In it, he quotes that hope and history passage from Seamus Heaney. And uh, you can just see Bill Clinton in that helicopter with his glasses drooped down over his nose like this. And he's reading the speech. And he got to the passage about hope and history. And he looks up at Wilkie Carter and says, this is really good stuff. And he proceeds to go on to Derry and give the speech in which he cites Seamus Heaney and then goes on to Dublin the next day and cites it again. And coincidentally, Seamus Heaney was at that time just about ready to go to Stockholm to get the Nobel Prize for Literature. So they were never able to have a really good close meeting, but he did meet them. And uh, Clinton was so taken with that speech that uh, Seamus wrote it out for him in longhand. And when Clinton got back to the White House, he hung it on the White House wall. And just recently, Bill Clinton did an article about that tour that he did in Ireland. And it was in the New York Times, I think. And they actually reproduced the longhand example of uh, the curate Troy. Of all of his work, this is the elementary question. Sure. What is your favorite poem? Okay, let's see. It's a poem called Casualty. And I probably cite it too often. But it's a poem about a man, a fisherman, that Seamus Heaney met in the north of Ireland, fairly close to where he was born. And uh, they would go to the same pub together. And this fisherman was a working-class man, right, and knew nothing about poetry. And uh, Seamus Heaney would sit on the, the other side of the bar And they'd have these sort of desultory conversations, you know. But most of it was just sort of glances at each other, right? And so eventually, Louis O'Neill, was this fisherman's name, had enough gumption, I guess you would say, to strike up a conversation. And they would have these sort of coded conversations, which, you know, Seamus Heaney always wanted to turn to eel fishing because he was rather embarrassed by the fact that he was a poet and not a working man, in a sense, right? So they would talk about eel fishing, and just occasionally they would edge into the subject of poetry. But Louis O'Neill was a great drinker, 
and his whole life was sort of pub life in a sense, right? And he had this wonderful dumb show where all he had to do was look at the bartender and raise his eyebrow, and he knew that the bartender would get him a bottle of stout. And so he had these different expressions that he would use in order to order his drinks. But right after the bloody Sunday massacre in Derry, where the British paratroops uh, murdered is the right word, you know, a number of Irish protesters in the street. And this was the beginning of the Irish civil rights movement. In 70, actually, it was. So the British paratroopers massacred a number of protesters in the street. And the IRA was particularly active at that time. And so the IRA decided that uh, they were going to announce a curfew for a certain day, a few days later after the massacre. And they put out the word that nobody was to go out that day. And uh, they put these red flags to indicate that this was a time of great danger. Well, Louis O'Neill could not keep out of the bars. And so he went to a pub. He thought, well, if I don't go to my regular pub, but I go down the road a bit, you see, this would be an out-of-the-way place and I'll be safe. Well, that was a pub that was blown up. And uh, Louis O'Neill was killed in the pub. And um, Seamus Heaney, in this poem called Casualty, has this wonderful description of his face in the blaze of the blast. Outfaced, he says about him, you see. And so Seamus Heaney uh, did not go to his uh, funeral. He wanted to, but he was off someplace. But he goes back at the end of the poem, and he remembers this wonderful time when he and Louis O'Neill had gone fishing together. They had gone out eel fishing on one of the locks nearby, in a sense. And at the end of the poem, you get this wonderful sense that Louis O'Neill is the fisherman pulling his lines in. And Heaney makes this wonderful connection between the poet developing a rhythm in his poetry, just as Louis O'Neill has developed this wonderful rhythm of pulling in the lines. And at the end, you can't tell, are they fishing? Are they writing poetry, in a sense, right? And so these men who never had a chance to really have a sort of intimate conversation, because being Irish, they didn't have intimate conversations. <laughs> but they had developed this kind of rapprochement in this fishing expedition that they had done together. And um, at the end of the poem, Seamus Heaney imagines Louis O'Neill as sort of the ghost of Hamlet's father. And he drifts off into the fog and just sort of disappears in a way, just like Hamlet's father had disappeared. So I shouldn't be paraphrasing the poem, but if you get a chance to read it, it's a wonderful poem. (laughs) This is where, I mean, this is a perfect ending. You and I should be lifting a glass of stout. That's right. And toasting. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah. If Seamus Heaney were here, that's what he'd want to do. Yeah. He died very young. Yeah, Usually artists that commit so fully to their lives, especially visual artists like Matisse, they live a long time. And writers who keep writing live a long time. So what you said is that Heaney probably worked himself. You know, I know that can be a cliche because people, do they really work themselves to death? Well, I think, yes, they do sometimes, you know. Uh, They do, and uh, he had heart problems well before this, and uh, they were persistent with him, and so his health was not great. Why do you think of all the Irish poets that President Biden would select this one? Well, 
I think because, you know, Seamus Heaney is very much a poet of history. And he's a a poet of political forces, in a sense, right? And the complex interchange of uh, people in politics, in a way. And he knew this because of the complex politics of the north of Ireland. To get the Good Friday Agreement signed, uh, you know, it was a tremendous amount of... uh, work and uh, negotiation, in a sense, and politics at its most grinding, in a sense. And I think Biden certainly knows that, right? I mean, look what he's involved in now, in a sense, right? Have Uh, you sent an autographed copy to President Biden? You know, I should do that. Oh, please do it so that it goes into the White House library. Yes, I, I can do that. I I tried very, very hard to get an interview with President Clinton, and um, I got fairly close, right? But the best I could do was get to his speechwriter, which was pretty good. And, you know, the Clinton archives, uh, the Clinton digital archives are really very good. And I wanted very much to get a recording of a St. Patrick's Day celebration in 2000 at the White House. Seamus Heaney was there, his wife was there, all the signatories of the Good Friday Agreement were there. So it was not anywhere where I could find it, but I got in touch with somebody at the library, and they very nicely supplied me with an audio recording. And, you know, Seamus Heaney was there, but uh, Bill Clinton took up this play that Seamus Heaney had written about hope and history, and it was a translation of Philoctetes, the Sophocles play, but it was called The Cure at Troy. And we thought, or one would think, that Bill Clinton only had the most superficial knowledge of The Cure at Troy, this play that Heaney had written. He went on for 10 minutes expostulating about this play, talking about the significance for him and for sort of world history in a way. And so the man had read the play. He knew it intimately. This was Bill Clinton, you know. And he said to Heaney at that White House uh, St. Patrick's Day, well, we didn't get it done. I mean, because there's, there's the Good Friday Agreement is, is still pending. It, there's some problems involved. But you know what? If this doesn't get resolved pretty quickly, George, George Mitchell was over there, and he says to George, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to send Seamus Heaney to really wind this up. <laughs> That's a paraphrase, but he did say that. No. What a wonderful life. Yes. Ended too soon. It did. And very uh, suddenly, you know, uh, he had a, an embolism, and it uh, ruptured, not expectedly. He was in the hospital at that time. But uh, do you know about the famous uh, sort of, I guess it was almost a text message that he sent to his wife at that time, just as he was dying. And he sent her this message, Noli Timore, Noli Timore. Heaney was always quoting classics, you know. And, and it said, Noli Timore, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This was the last message he sent to his wife. But his remains are here in the United States? No, no, no. They're in Balahi, uh, which is his hometown. And uh, they put up a sort of museum there. And so I've actually been to the graveyard. And th- this is the inscription on the tombstone. Walk on air against your better judgment. And that is Jamesini. You know, uh, he was a very down-to-earth person. He was very practical. Uh, he came from a working-class family in, in the Northern Ireland, and uh, his father was a kettle broker. And the thought that this boy, of course, people in his family were literate, but there were no poets in his family. And the idea that this boy, coming from a rural farming family in Northern Ireland, his father a kettle broker and a farmer, 
would go on to be a sort of world-famous poet is just, it seems inconceivable. And so he could almost never himself believe that he was a poet of this stature, in a sense. And he was always sort of doubting himself in that sense, right? Uh, how can I be a poet? You know, look where I came from. I'm enthralled. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> how are you going to follow this book up? Are you going to do another book? You know, I don't want to just commit and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm searching different topics in a way. And uh, I probably would not do an Irish writer necessarily. I uh, might like to turn to maybe somebody in this country, but I, I'm really not sure at this point. I'm just taking a breath right now and trying to get the book a little better known in a sense. And uh, so I will do something else. But uh, you know, I probably don't have too many books left. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, but I understand, you know, you, you keep going, and I think you're, you're doing one yourself, I think, right? No, you're not. Okay. We were speculating we were doing a memoir, but... Oh, yeah. I would love to. Yeah. I well, it would be fascinating. I yeah. would love to yeah. do that. Because... I didn't mean to say no, but that one I would love to yeah, do. Yeah, because you, you've had such a career, and, and, you know, the things you talked about in the podcast were so fascinating, you know. It's very nice of you to say, but please don't and, take up your airtime. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just interpolating that. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that for St. Patrick's Day, you will sign a copy of your book and send it to the President of the United okay. States. That's the first time anybody has suggested that. And uh, yeah, I will, I will do that. Yeah. President Biden right. has, he's told America because he constantly right. quotes this man. Mm -hmm. So he's introduced him to America. Sure. Mm -hmm. And it would be a wonderful gift. It's a good suggestion. And I think belongs in the White yeah. House Library. Yeah. And I do have a whole chapter on, the, on hope and history and the, the play from which that, that excerpt comes. And at the end of it, I speculate why that passage became so famous and so quotable. Will sense, you just... Right? Give it to us one more time. Okay. Uh, at some point, there will come a time when hope and history will rhyme. That's the end of the poem, right? And I, if I had the passage in front of me, I would read it. But, yeah, it's very well known. Well, hope and history did come together when Bill Clinton worked so hard with Tony Blair yes. in Northern Ireland. Right. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. Work still has to be done, but... Yeah, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, uh, Biden's trip this time, I didn't think was covered as much as it deserved. But Bill Clinton's trip was very much covered. Before we shut off, is there anything that you think should be added to this? Not really. I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground, certainly. I mean, there's more, but uh, yeah, I think we've done a good job. <laughs> that was author Edward O'Shea speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly about his latest book, Seamus Heaney's American Odyssey. It was published by Rutledge Press in December 2022. This interview was recorded on May 19, 2023, during BIO's annual conference at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York in Manhattan. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BioMember Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. 
Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.